Welcome to the Ringwood Publishing Podcast. I'm your host, Jess. And I'm your host, Matilda. And each week we are joined by a series of authors, colleagues and guests to talk about all things books and publishing. Welcome back to the Ringwood Publishing Podcast. This week we have Fiona Gillian Caron to talk about her book, The Bone on the Beach. I'm with my co-host Matilda and I'm Jess. Fiona, we have a few questions about your book. What is it that inspired you to write The Bone on the Beach? Well, I found a bone on the beach. That was what inspired me. I went for a walk and one of the beaches along here, way, way on the west coast. And I was walking along and I found a bone. And I thought it was very odd to find a bone on the beach. I tend to do that. I tend to see something odd and think that's a good story. And so what I did was I thought, well, why is the bone here? What's it doing? And then I thought, okay, this is a mystery. So then I went back to the idea and I thought, well, if I could link it to some Celtic legend, that would be great. And so I looked up a Celtic legend and I thought, okay, this will be good. Dear to the Sorrows. And so that's what I did. And I think it's all very well telling an old legend, but it's kind of all a bit in the past. And so people like mysteries and ghost stories. And I thought, well, if I make it contemporary, then it'll work pretty well. So that's what I did. Absolutely. And there's a lot of contemporary Greek mythological retellings at the moment as well, with like Ariadne and Circe. It's interesting that you focused on Celtic mythology. Why is it that you chose to approach Celtic mythology with this book? Well, because I'm living here in the Highlands and (laughs) it's kind of a (laughs) no-brainer. There is so much incredible mythological history up here, legends, superstition. It's just wonderful. So I thought, well, you know, you're up here. If you write something kind of American, like where I live part of the time, or or English, where I'm not really English, I'm actually Scottish. But anyway, I don't have the accent, that's all. That's what I say. (laughs) And I thought, if I did something like that, it wouldn't work for me. I'm right here in the heart of it. And so that was it. Wonderful. Amazing. Yeah, that's great. That's great to hear. So how would you describe Bone on the Beach to someone who hadn't heard of it before? Well, as I said, it's a a reimagining of the Celtic legend. And it's a story of a girl. It's partly Irish, partly Scottish mythology, so that's why it's Celtic. And it's a story of this baby that was born. When she was born, this man, this seer said that she will grow up to be the most beautiful girl in the world. And the clans we'll all fight over her and there'll be a war. And so the king said, okay, well, when she gets to be 18 or of age at that time, 18 in my book, I'll marry her and then there won't be any war. But what happened was that shortly before she got to be of age, she saw this wonderful man and that was it. She fell in love and that's when the disaster happened. Because no matter what you do in Celtic mythology, you can't escape your fate, basically. Amazing. That does seem to be a running theme in a lot of mythology. Love it. (laughs) So did you have to do a lot of research for the book or did you find that it came really naturally to you? Well, research obviously was looking at the legend and there's not that much because it's been an oral tradition passed down from storyteller. But there are a few, there's some music that I bought years ago, which was a whole CD about the story of Deer, I didn't know I had it. And then, of course, there was J.M. Singh, who wrote a two-act play, the Irish playwright. And there is a certain amount of historical information. There was some lady who lived in Ireland and she was researching all these Celtic legends. So I did all that. But regarding the, the research, I mean, I'm living here and I have made friends and neighbours and I watch every day what they do and they tell me all sorts of wonderful things that have happened and the legends as well as the everyday stuff. 
And then, for example, in the book, Deirdre, as a child, she befriends a baby eagle, Ilare. And so I didn't know anything about baby eagles or any eagles at all. So I went on to YouTube and there was this wonderful video about this man who rescued a baby eagle and what he did with them and the sound the eagle made and just a lot of different things, you know, the historical thing, the written stuff, local stuff, and then also the fact that you can find out everything on the internet, can't you? <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> Amazing. How long did it take you to write the novel? Was there any significant revisions from your sort of initial idea to the finished product or did you sort of have an idea and you just stuck with it? It took me about a two years from the time that I thought of the idea and started doing a little bit of research. And I, I knew the two characters. I decided that to set it in a contemporary scenario, 2017, where this girl comes to a village and she gets involved with the mystery of Deirdre, which happened 15 years earlier. And so I thought it would be a good idea to have the story of Deirdre told in the third person and then the story of Megan, who's the girl who comes to the village, to tell it in the first person. That way the reader could get themselves involved with the story and it was easy to distinguish because I flipped backwards and forwards. I actually started writing with both timelines going together, alternating, but it was a muddle. I couldn't work out where I was. So I thought I'm going to stop and I'm going to write the story of Deirdre and then because it's on the computer, which is wonderful, you can just add the things in. So then I could add in all the red herrings and all the bits I wanted to add in. So two years to do that. And all the other thing is that when I write, I always know the first scene. I always know the last. I'm never quite sure how I'm going to get there. So I just start writing. And so I did that. And then I started sending it out. Of course, when Ringwood said they'd like to publish it, then, of course, there was all the editing and the bits and pieces. And we argued backwards and forwards about what I was going to change and what I wasn't going to change. And some things I was very determined, like I'm not changing the ending. I'm not telling you the ending, but I'm not <laughs> changing the ending. That's that's as it is. And so the characters kind of developed. So I went along. So as far as I was concerned, after two years, I'd done everything I could do. And then I worked with Ringwood after that. Amazing. I mean, I think the different third person, the first person creates a nice sense of narrative distance that alleviates any confusion with the points of view. Would you consider yourself to be more character oriented or narrative oriented in your writing process? Well, what I do is I usually write in the morning for three or four hours. I'm not religious about it, but I do tend to do that. And then I leave it until the next day. And often the next day I realize that actually I've created more plot than anything else. So I go back and I do the character a bit more. And then I try to do the five senses or whatever. And I say, I haven't done what it feels like. So for example, if I'm saying someone's walking down the hill and I'm thinking, I can't imagine. So I go outside and I walk down the hill until I know what I'm doing. So usually the second day I revise what I've written and then I write another day's work. And I do that until I get to the end of the chapter until I'm completely happy with it. And then I close off that chapter and I go on to the next one. And then only at the very end do I start reading the whole thing again. I like the real world inspiration you put into your writing, like going for walks and finding actual bones on the beach. I think it's nice that you take inspiration from your actual life. Yes. I mean, I've seen a couple of things that inspire me. I haven't written them yet. But one day I was driving along the road and I saw a black high heeled shoe in the middle of the road. I thought, oh, there's another mystery. <laughs> then we drove past another day and there was this swing, like one of those seat swings in a front yard, a front garden in the States. And there was no wind and there was no one around. And I thought, oh, there's another story. So there's lots of stories that you can write just by noticing something that's really odd and peculiar. And my mind just starts going, and I don't sleep very well at night thinking about it. <laughs> <laughs> Too much inspiration. Yeah. <laughs> really lovely to approach your writing, just picking inspiration from things you see. Yes. 
It's absolutely wonderful up here. I mean, I can't imagine being in a better place to write a book like this. It's just perfect. Every day I look out the window and the world just changes. The weather is crazy but wonderful and the people are lovely and they all have their own stories and their history. The history up here of the Highland Clearances is very disturbing in many ways, but it also makes the landscape have that sad quality. And you know, when you look at something beautiful, often it makes you as sad as it makes you happy. I know that sounds a bit strange, but well, you know what it's like when you're very happy. You're so happy you cry. Well, not quite that much, but you know what I mean. <laughs> it's the same idea. Yeah, yeah exactly. It's a nice way to think about the landscape and to sort of find inspiration in the tragedy of the history, but also to be able to see us this really beautiful space. Yes. We did actually hike up to a clearance village a few weeks ago when I was doing that social media. Actually killed me. Five hours of walking up into the middle of nowhere. Wow. Oh, gosh. I know. I was actually feeling quite ill with this. I thought I was with friends who were understanding. But it was there and back. It was about five hours walking. But you just were standing in this clearance village and you just felt like the people were still there. I mean, it was it was eerie. The walls were standing. The fireplaces were still there. The windows and doors were still there. And so few houses, and every now and again a sheep came and had a look at us and walked off again. <laughs> that was it. So it was it was great. It was lovely. It was worth the effort, but I don't think I'll do it again for a few years if I live that long. It's so rich with history. I can see why there would be like a tangible sort of presence of it when you visit. Do any of you ladies know the Highlands at all? Are you familiar with the Highlands? I've actually never been. I live in Glasgow at the moment, but I live between Glasgow and Edinburgh for a wee bit. I've not managed to make it up to the Highlands yet. I'm quite looking forward to getting the chance to do it. And what about you, Matilda? Yes? Yeah. This summer on a road trip with my family, we drove all around Scotland. So we drove along the North Coast 500 and up near Thurso. That's just where I live, yes. Yeah, yeah. We stayed in East May. It's very different from anywhere else in Scotland. My family come from the West Coast, not far from Glasgow. So I know the lowlands a little bit, but up here it's just something else, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it really is. And I can see how inspiring it must be to live there. Yes. Did you have any messages that you wanted to convey through the writing of your novel? I didn't set out to do any messages. I just write because it's a good story, basically. But one thing that struck me when I was writing, I sometimes write things and I don't know where they come from, which is a bit strange. Maybe that's good. And then one day I wrote about Deirdre has this great aunt who's her mentor, and she also has the Shellac, which is the second sight. So she says to Deirdre, it is our fate to be misunderstood but never to deny our right to be so. And that's what I feel about life. Never let anybody or anything define who you are. You are who you are. You be proud of it. And don't let anyone put you off and tell you it's wrong. At the end of the day, I thought, well, that was my message, but I didn't intend to say it that way. So that to me was very important. Amazing. So have you got any other writing projects in the pipeline? Maybe the the story about the shoe? Yeah, no, I haven't got that one. <laughs> well, I wrote three novels before I actually wrote this one. It was kind of a learning process. And I wrote a, a book in Scotland, which needs some help. I wrote one set in Sardinia, where I went on holiday. And I wrote a dystopian novel, which is the most ready for publication, set in a closed community environment in, in America, which a lot of people think they're better than everyone else and they close their community off and nobody's allowed it. And then I've already started writing my next one. I'm 10,000 words into that. And that is also set in the Highlands. So it's just a process. You know, you pick up something, you put it down. But I got a little stuck on that. So I've spent a lot of time these last few months working on promoting this book. But next year, I'm going to get back to my 10,000 words and start again. <laughs> Sounds like a great New Year's resolution. <laughs> yes, yes. 
it's been really wonderful chatting to you and hearing about your writing process. Yes, thank you very much for spending some time talking. Thank you so much for coming on. And good luck with the rest of your events. Thank you. If you want to jump on the Bone on the Beach train, we have three upcoming events. One in Thurso Library on the 13th of October, one at Ty Pronger in Edinburgh on the 16th of October, and the final one at the Arlington Baths in Glasgow on the 14th of November, which is part of Book Week Scotland. We hope to see you there and thanks for listening.